You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Today is Palm Sunday. We're going to be studying a passage which, which addresses what Palm Sunday is about. So Matthew, chapter 21, in your Bibles, if you would. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it speaks today. Lord, give us ears to hear what you have for us today. And Lord, may we recognize you and honor you as king in our lives and our hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there she was walking down the aisle. It was her wedding day, and she was radiant. Do you guys know that moment when the doors at the back of the church open, and everybody stands, and they turn their attention to look at the bride as she walks down the aisle? Well, as all eyes in that moment were focused on her as she was walking down the aisle on her wedding day, her eyes were focused on him, or rather me, because I was the one on the other end of that aisle waiting for my bride to come down the aisle. I was waiting for her. Now, the reason why Rosemary's eyes were fixated on me so intently was because there was a big question in her mind, something that was occupying her mind. She was wondering, is he going to do it? See, she was hoping that I would. She was hoping that I would. She even asked me before the wedding, are you going to do it? Because her friend's husband had done it at his wedding, and she really hoped that I would do it at our wedding. But much to her dismay, I did not do it. Rather, I smiled instead. I smiled as she walked down the aisle, and I took her hand, led her up the stairs, and she stood next to me on the altar. We took vows, got married, all that stuff. And later on, she asked me, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you cry? That's what she wanted me to do. Why didn't you cry? I was really hoping you would cry. And I told her, are you crazy? Why would I cry at a moment when it's time to celebrate? I was happy. You want me to cry at my wedding? That wouldn't be a good sign, would it? Now, now of course, Rosemary was hoping that I would cry tears of joy, not tears of sorrow. But in our text today, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see a situation which is kind of like that. We're going to see a moment of celebration, a moment of rejoicing, and yet the person at the center of that celebration is crying. The person at the center of the celebration is crying. That the person was Jesus, and the day was a day called Palm Sunday. And so in our study today, we're going to see why it was that on Palm Sunday, the crowds cheered, but Jesus wept. The title of our message is, Behold Your King. Behold Your King. And here's what we're going to learn in our study today. Here's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence. I'd love it if you'd write this down, take it with you as you go today. You ready? The true king came to meet our greatest need and he wept with us so that one day we might rejoice with him forever. I'm saying it again. The true king came to meet our greatest need, and he wept with us so that one day we might rejoice with him forever. We're going to take that sentence. We're going to break it down as we study this passage today. So first of all, let's talk about the true king, the true king. You know, Israel and Judah had a lot of kings. We know that because we just studied, didn't we, through the books of First and Second Kings. And what we saw in our study of First and Second Kings was that each and every one of the kings of Israel and Judah, 
was a major disappointment. They were a disappointment. Some of them were just absolute abysmal failures, but even the best of them, they had disappointing flaws. None of them fulfilled their potential. All of them left the people wishing for and wanting and hoping for something more. And part of the reason for that is because God had promised that one day a true king would come. One day he would send a true king. That king would be a descendant of King David. But more importantly, he would be perfectly righteous, meaning that he would do what was right in every way, in every instance. There would be no more corruption, no more injustice, but he wouldn't just be righteous. He would also be a liberator, a true liberator who would set the people free from all oppression. And, and he would establish a kingdom of peace that would last forever. And so we saw in First and Second Kings how with every new generation, there would be a new king. And with every new king, there was always this question in the people's minds, will this one be the one, the king that we've been waiting for and hoping for for all of these years? And with each and every king, there was nothing but disappointment. Because rather than liberating them, you know what we saw in First and Second Kings? Rather than liberating them, the kings of Judah and Israel, you know what they did? They led the people right back into bondage, right back into bondage, both spiritually and also literally. We left off at the end of Second Kings, seeing the people of Israel literally being carried off into bondage and slavery in Babylon. Well, after many years in exile, the Jewish people were allowed to leave Babylon and come back to their homeland in Israel. Uh, you can read about that, by the way, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, about how they resettled the land, how they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. Well, during that time, after the exile, we call it the post-exilic period, meaning after the exile, God sent the people prophets to speak to them. Some of the prophets he sent at this time were the prophets Haggai and Malachi. Maybe you've seen some of those names in the books at the end of your Old Testament, Haggai and Malachi. But the most interesting prophet of all of them during this period was the prophet Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. And the reason he was so interesting is because God gave him these wild, apocalyptic visions of the future. And the common theme of all of these visions that God gave to Zechariah was that the coming future king, he was still going to come. The coming of the king, the promised Messiah, he was still going to come. In fact, it's interesting that his name was Zechariah. It's almost as if God knew what his ministry was going to be, because the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And Zechariah's message to the people was that God had not forgotten his promise that he would send them one day a true king, the Messiah. And in Zechariah's visions, one of the most surprising things that God revealed about the coming of this future king was that when the promised king would finally come, initially, the people would not recognize him and the people would actually reject him initially. In fact, they wouldn't just reject him. They would attack him. And yet this king would still treat them, in spite of their attacks against him, he would still treat them as friends. He would still fight for them on their behalf, and he would defeat their enemies. And one day, they would indeed recognize him for who he truly was. Well, in addition to that, one of the other things that Zechariah said was how this king would enter the city of Jerusalem when he came. For example, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, here's what Zechariah 
prophesied to the people about the future coming of this king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let me ask you this. In all the movies you've ever seen about conquering kings, right, who go into battle, have you ever seen one of those kings lead the army into battle on a donkey? Of course not, right? Have you ever seen those equestrian statues, right, with a general or a fighter sitting on top of a horse? You ever see one where he's sitting on top of a donkey? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. Why? Conquering kings don't ride on donkeys. Conquering kings ride on horses, right? You can't take a donkey into battle. They're slow, they're, they're small, and they're stubborn. And that's kind of the point here that Zechariah is making. It was surprising, but it was the point. This king who is coming, when he comes, he will not come as a military leader to fight military battles. Yes, he will be a liberator, but the liberation he will bring will not come about through military force or political action. He will be a different kind of king, and he will bring a different kind of liberation. True, lasting, real liberation. Another thing that Zechariah foretold in his visions was in chapter 14, he foretold that when the Messiah came, when the king came, he would enter from the Mount of Olives. Now keep that in mind as we move on to the next part of our sentence. The true king came. He, he came, just as he was promised. In the 21st chapter of Matthew's gospel, it begins with these words. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem... Jesus had been to Jerusalem at least three times before this during his ministry. But this time in Jerusalem was going to be different. It says there in verse 1, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is this large hill which sits next to the hill that Jerusalem sits on. If you ever get to go with us to Israel, and I hope you do, we're actually going to take a trip later this year. But the, the city of Jerusalem, it sits in this area. It's kind of mountainous. It sits on top of a hill or a mountain, and right next to it is an even larger hill called the Mount of Olives. In fact, many of the pictures you see of Jerusalem, the famous pictures, they're taken from the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives is actually bigger and taller than the mountain that Jerusalem sits sits on. So you get kind of this view looking down on Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Well, again, it's a large hill or a small mountain there, the Mount of Olives. And on this mountain, there were two villages at the time of Jesus. One of them was called Bethphage. The other one was called Bethany. Now, Bethany is where Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, lived. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus and his disciples spent the night in Bethany right before this took place. So here they are. They're coming into Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Do you remember Zechariah's prophecy? When the king comes, he will enter Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Jesus here fulfilling that prophecy. We, we continue reading. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately when you find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you anything, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Just thinking through this, you ever notice that Jesus love to borrow other people's stuff. You ever notice this? He's a big borrower. He's not a big, like a big purchaser, a big borrower, right? Like, so he borrows a boat to preach on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when it comes time for his last supper with his disciple, he 
he borrows an upper room. He, he now borrows a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Why did Jesus do this? Was it because he was frugal? He was a penny pincher? Was it because he just didn't have any money? Well, well certainly Jesus had some money. And we know that because Jesus had a, a treasurer for his ministry. Judas was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. So Jesus had some money, enough to justify having a treasurer. My guess is the reason why Jesus liked to borrow things rather than buy things wasn't primarily because he liked to save money. I think there was another reason which was much more important. I believe that the reason Jesus always wanted to borrow things was because he wanted to give people the opportunity to participate in his ministry. Because somebody might have said, you can imagine, oh, I wish I could be involved in Jesus' ministry, but, you know, I've got responsibilities. I've got a job. I've got a business. I've got a family to take care of. I can't just go traveling around all the time. You know, I, I, I'm not good at preaching and stuff, so I guess I just can't be involved. But, man, I wish I could be. And Jesus would have looked at those people, and he would have said, hey, what do you have? And they would have said, I don't know. I've just got this, this donkey, right? And Jesus said, perfect. I need one of those. Let me borrow it. I'll let you use it. And you'll get to be part of my ministry by me using your stuff, right? Like, hey, what do you have? I've got just a boat. I've just got an upper room. Just say, perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. You give it to me, and I'll use it. And you get to be part of what I'm doing. And I just want to encourage you guys to think in that way and to ask yourself this question. What is it that you have that you can give to be used for Jesus's mission? Is it a computer, a car, time on a Tuesday, knowledge and skills? I don't know what it is, but I bet you do. And I want to tell you this. God can use it if you're willing to offer it up to him in service to him. You can be part of his mission using whatever it is that you may have. Well, look at verse 4. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That's the prophet Zechariah saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Well, let's see how the people responded to the coming of the king. Look at verse 7. The disciples, they brought this donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John's gospel, in John chapter 12, John tells us that these weren't these tree branches. They weren't just any old tree branches. They were palm branches. That's why we call this day Palm Sunday. The other gospels tell us that the people didn't only lay them on the ground, but they also waved them in the air. See, people were laying down their cloaks. They were using these palm branches to create a red carpet, if you will, welcoming Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. But you know what? There's actually more going on here than that. They're, they're doing more than just welcoming Jesus and creating a red carpet with their coats and with these palm branches. Here's why. See, laying down of coats before someone and waving palm branches, these were very symbolic actions which had historical significance in Israel. Let me explain. Back in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when Jehu, do you guys remember Jehu? He was one of the kings of Israel. When Jehu became king, he overthrew the wicked dynasty of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who encouraged the worship of this terrible pagan god called Baal. Well, Jehu came, and he overthrew them, and he liberated the people from this oppressive regime. And it says there that when Jehu came in, and he led this revolt, what happened is that the people welcomed Jehu as their king. How? By taking off their cloaks and laying them on the ground before him. 
So by taking off their cloaks and laying them on the ground before Jesus, what are the people saying? They're saying, Jesus, we want you to be the next Jehu. We want you to be the one who will liberate us from these oppressive pagan rulers. We want you to be our king, Jesus. They were hoping that Jesus would be the next Jehu. At this time, they, they were ruled over by the Romans. But you know what? There actually was a time in Israel's history. It's not written in the Bible because it took place in that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We call that the intertestamental period. It's about 400 years. Well, during that period, there actually was a time when Israel was ruled by an oppressive foreign regime, in this case, the Syrians. And the Israelites rose up and they fought for their independence and they gained their independence. They succeeded. And that's where the palm branches come in. You see, this happened about 200 years before Jesus was born. Syria was ruling over Israel. And during that time, there was a revolt, a Jewish revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And during that time, these Jewish freedom fighters, they successfully overthrew the Syrians and they gained their independence. And when that happened, you can read about it in the book of Maccabees. That's what it tells the story of. The people celebrated by throwing a big parade and waving palm branches in the air. And so for the Jewish people, understand this, palm branches were a symbol of deliverance from oppression. They were a symbol of Jewish independence and, more importantly, deliverance from oppression. In fact, at this time, the Jewish coins had a picture of a palm branch on them because it was a symbol of, of liberty from the oppressors. So by laying their cloaks on the ground, by waving palm branches and putting them before Jesus, the Jewish people were expressing their hope and their desire, their belief that Jesus was going to be the liberator they had been waiting for, the one who would overthrow the Romans and establish Israel once again as an independent nation. And look at what they say to him in verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. The word Hosanna means save now. The only problem, of course, is that Jesus is riding on a donkey. I'm sure that people were wondering, they might have been wondering, how is he going to lead us in, in an uprising against the Romans riding on that little donkey, right? Like, how is, like, how is he going to do that? I mean, I know that's what the prophecy says. It just doesn't seem like a, a very effective way of leading a revolt. And imagine the Roman soldiers standing around watching this happen. They must have been laughing, laughing, looking at this guy and being like, oh, okay, so this is the guy? This is the guy they've been waiting for who's going to rise up and overthrow us riding on that little donkey into town? Yeah, right, right? They would have laughed. And that brings us to the next part of our sentence. The true king came to meet our greatest need. To meet our greatest need. It says in Matthew chapter 21 that when Jesus, when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Jerusalem at that time, remember this, Jerusalem would have been full of people. It would have been maxed out. Like the people at this time had come for the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover. Now Passover was one of the Jewish annual feasts, but it was by far the most important of the year. Any able-bodied Jewish person, no matter where you lived in the world, even if you didn't live anywhere near Jerusalem, you were expected to do everything you could to come to Jerusalem for Passover. 
So during this week, the population of Jerusalem swelled two, three, four times its normal size. Anybody who had room, like if you had a couch that was not being sat on, right, there's going to be somebody sleeping on that couch. There's going to be people sleeping on your floor. There's going to be people sleeping everywhere where there was room. People were just, they were crowded into Jerusalem. The population was swelled during this time. And that means that if you were going to lead an uprising, this would be the perfect time to do it. Everybody's in town. You've got the Romans outnumbered. This is the best time to do it. Now, the Romans had a military base there in Jerusalem, inside the city of Jerusalem. The, head, the headquarters for the Roman occupation of Israel was in a different city. It was called Caesarea Maritime. That's where the headquarters of the Roman occupation was located, north of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast. But in Jerusalem, they had built a fortress, a military fortress, because Jerusalem was, you know, the place where all the stuff happened. And so they wanted to have a presence there. So the Romans had built this fortress in Jerusalem right next to the Temple Mount. It was called the Antonia Fortress. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem with us, the remnants of this fortress still exist to this day. And this Antonia fortress that the Romans built, it was located right next to the temple. And we read there in Matthew chapter 21 that Jesus, as he entered Jerusalem, you got to understand this. He's riding into town and everybody fully expects that he's going to lead this crowd and go to the Antonia fortress and let the Romans know that their, their time as rulers over Israel has ended. But instead of leading the people to the Antonia fortress, Jesus made a different turn, a turn that they didn't expect. Rather than going to the Roman barracks, the Antonia Fortress, Jesus led them to the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And rather than cleansing Jerusalem of the Romans, Jesus cleansed the temple of the money changers who were ripping off people who had come to worship God. It tells us in verse 12 that he turned over the tables and he rebuked these money changers, saying, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And then it says in verse 14 that the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. Now listen, the Jewish people who had come that day to welcome Jesus, to celebrate him as their king, the ones who laid their cloaks on the ground, the ones who waved the palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, they would have been very confused by this. I mean, what is Jesus doing? I mean, Jesus, come on. We've got bigger fish to fry than some people, you know, charging a little bit too high of a price in the temple, don't we? I mean, we've got bigger, more pressing problems than the money changers. I mean, Jesus, come on. Whose side are you even on? The, the blind and lame people, they can wait. They've been blind and lame for a long time. What's a few more days? Let, deal with that later. But now, deal with the Romans, man. This is the time. you got to strike while the iron's hot. Deal with the Romans. What are you going to do about the Romans? Whose side are you on? And maybe they told themselves, okay, okay, okay. It's just the first day of Passover. Like, maybe he's just getting warmed up. Maybe he's, he's just, you know, doing his thing in the temple. And then tomorrow he's going to lead us in this uprising against the Romans. But tomorrow came, and it went, and Jesus did not overthrow the Romans. He didn't lead a revolt. And then the next day, and the next day. And many of these people, understand, they became so confused, so disappointed, so disillusioned that Jesus had not turned out to be the great liberator they thought he was going to be, that they, they thought the scripture said he was going to be, that many of these people 
who were part of that same crowd shouting Hosanna and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, many of these same people would join another crowd only a few days later that would shout a different tune. Instead of Hosanna, they would now be shouting, crucify him. Here's the thing. John's gospel tells us, John's gospel refers to Jesus's miracles as signs. Did you know that? It's interesting that uh, in all the other gospels, they're referred to as miracles. But John's gospel specifically refers to Jesus's miracles over and over as signs. Now, what's a sign? A sign is something which points to something else. Right? So the sign in and of itself is not that interesting. The sign is interesting because it points to something else beyond itself. In other words, John wants us to understand, why did Jesus perform miracles? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Is it just because miracles are cool and Jesus is powerful? Or was there another reason? John tells us there was a reason. The reason Jesus performed miracles is because the miracles were signs which pointed to something else. So when Jesus healed the sick, when Jesus raised the dead, when Jesus even cleansed the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers, these weren't just miracles or actions. These were signs which pointed to something. And the something they pointed to, they pointed to the kingdom which he had come to establish. The kingdom. They were signs of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. You see, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem as the promised king. Yes, he was a king. Yes, he was a liberator. But he didn't come to save us from the Romans or, or from whoever your political enemy is today. He came to save us from sin and all of its effects in every way. He came to save us from corruption and from sickness. He came to save us from suffering and sorrow and from death itself. He didn't come to reestablish Israeli sovereignty in the Middle East. He came to establish the kingdom of God over all the universe forever. You see, all these people wanted, they wanted something so much less than what Jesus came to give them. They wanted victory over the Romans, but Jesus came to give them something much greater and something infinitely better. As the true king, Jesus came to meet our greatest need. Do you remember what Zechariah's prophecy said? It said, behold your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Righteous. You see, all of us have a problem. You know what the problem we have is? It's a righteousness problem. We have a problem that we lack righteousness. And the reason that's a problem is because the Bible tells us that God is righteous, meaning that he is holy and pure and good. But all of us, the Bible says, have fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of his righteousness. That means that whereas God is righteous, we are unrighteous. And that's a really big problem because the Bible says literally that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have a problem. If we're unrighteous and the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God, then what hope is there for us? The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death eternally. And yet, the good news of the gospel. What we're here to celebrate today is that God has provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, the only truly righteous person who ever lived, the only person who ever lived a life of true perfection and holiness, true obedience to God the Father. Here's what the Bible says about him, about Jesus. It says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
You see, this is why the Bible says that although the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, the people in Jerusalem, they had an expectation of what Jesus was going to do for them. But Jesus didn't do for them what they expected him to do. And as a result, some of them turned away from Jesus. And I just want to ask you this question. I think it's worth asking all of ourselves. How about you? How do you respond when things don't go the way you wanted or things don't go the way that you hoped that they would? What about when God doesn't answer your prayers in the time or in the way that you hoped that he would or expected that he would? How do you respond? Because here's what we learned from Palm Sunday. Jesus didn't give the people what they expected. He came to give them something better. Jesus didn't give the people what they hoped he would give them. He came to give them something better. But they didn't realize it was better until later on. You know, sometimes following Jesus and walking with God by faith, it means trusting in God's character and in God's promises and in God's word, even when things don't work out the way that you hoped that they would. Because you have God's word that he loves you, and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And even these momentary hardships and difficulties that we face, the Bible tells us that God is even using these things to build up an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. You know, the message of Palm Sunday is that you can trust God even when things don't go your way because he loves you and his plan for you is actually better. His plan for you is better. Here's why. Because with God, what we have is not a genie, but a father. With God, we don't have a genie. We have a father. And that is infinitely better. I think that many times we kind of wish that God would be, be like a genie. Because you know what a genie does? A genie is obligated to. They have to give you what you ask for as long as you say the magic words. But a father any of you who are fathers or who've had a father, a good father, you know this, that a father may not give you always what you ask for, but in his love for you, in his wisdom, he will always lovingly give you what he knows that you need. See, sometimes we think that we wish God would be a genie, but we have something better. With God, we have not a genie, but a father, and that's infinitely better. Well, that brings us to the last part of our sentence today, and that's this. The true king came to meet our greatest need. And he wept with us. That's the last part. He wept with us so that one day we might rejoice with him forever. Luke's gospel, when Luke tells us about Palm Sunday, he tells us that as Jesus was riding this donkey down the Mount of Olives into the valley and up into Jerusalem, do you know what he was doing? As the crowds were cheering, Jesus was crying. Did you ever notice this? During this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, everybody's singing his praises, everybody's shouting Hosanna. And what's Jesus doing? It tells us in Luke 19, verse 41, that Jesus was crying. He was crying. As the people were throwing him a party, Jesus was crying. It's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't Jesus be reveling in the fact that finally, even if just for a moment, he's finally getting the, the recognition and the praise that he deserves. For a moment, at least they're recognizing him for who he is, even if it's not going to last. But instead of reveling in this moment, Jesus was crying. Why? Because there on the Mount of Olives, from that point where he could look over the city of Jerusalem, he looks over this city and he knows that this current enthusiasm 
is not going to last. He knows that the people are going to turn against him. He knows that even though he has come to save them, and even though he loves them, they still don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand why he's come. He knows that, that their hearts are hard, and as he enters the city, they're going to misunderstand what he's doing, and they're going to reject him, and they're going to ultimately attack him and nail him to a cross. And yet here's what's so incredible. With tears streaming down his face, Jesus continued on that path into Jerusalem. Even though he knew that the people were going to misunderstand what he was about to do, even though he knew that the people were going to reject him, and many of these people singing his praises, they were going to be part of the crowd only a few days later shouting, crucify him. Even though he knew that he would be arrested and abused and crucified to death, he kept going with tears on his face. How was he able to do that? Where do you find the strength to be able to do something like that? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that the thing which motivated Jesus in this moment as he was going towards the cross, the thing that kept him going in spite of the rejection of the people, in spite of the horrors of the cross that he knew awaited him, his motivation, the thing that kept him going was the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus in this moment? It was the knowledge of what his death on the cross was going to accomplish. He knew that the end result of his death on the cross would be the liberation of our souls. He knew that by his death, he would defeat death forever so that we who look to him might have life everlasting. You see, Jesus wept in that moment so that one day we might be able to rejoice with him forever. Check out what it says in the book of Revelation, in this great vision that God gave to the apostle John about the future and about heaven. Here's what John saw in this vision he had of heaven. Check this out in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Do you notice that? What do they have in their hands? Palm branches. And crying out with a loud voice, listen to what they say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. The Bible calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember what I talked to you about earlier, just a few minutes ago? That for the Jewish people, palm branches were, were a symbol of deliverance from oppression. And now here we see people waving palm branches in heaven. People waving palm branches in heaven, celebrating Jesus because he has liberated them truly and fully from that which is at the root of all oppression. Whereas the people on Palm Sunday shouted, Hosanna, save us now. We see at the great multitude in heaven, they sing, truly he has saved us and redeemed us. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel. This hope can give you strength and courage to face the things that you have before you in life to face, the difficulties, the hardships, the trials, because you can know that this is what awaits you. And because you know that, you can also know that, you're, that God loves you as a father, and he is working all things together for your good, even when things don't go the way that you hoped that they would, because we know that this is what awaits us. We can have the courage to face whatever life brings our way, whatever life throws at us, because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave his life for us. 
And the way to receive this kingdom and to have this hope is by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and receiving him as your king, as Lord of your life. And friends, I want to urge you to do that today. Listen, the true king came to meet our greatest need, and he wept with us so that one day we might rejoice with him forever. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.